Hey everyone, welcome back to National Park After Dark. I'm Danielle. I'm Cassie, and we are continuing our Wolf Week. Yes, it's so exciting. It wasn't planned, but it's just the way the cookie crumbled, and I couldn't be happier personally. Yeah. I could talk to all of these people all day. So we have a special week full of wolves and a special week full of talking to people about them. So it's a nice little change up. And today's conversation is incredibly insightful and inspiring. Yes, we are. We're diving into a lot of wolf questions and the wolf project that just happened in Colorado. It's been all over the news that they reintroduced 10 wolves so far into Colorado. And today we have the pleasure of speaking to two incredible leaders in their fields and two leaders in the decade long effort to reintroduce wolves into portions of their historic range here in Colorado. We're speaking to Dr. Lambert, who is a professor of wildlife ecology and conservation biology at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she also directs the American Canid Project. Joanna has spent the past 35 years of her career studying endangered mammals, species in remote regions around the world. Most recently, she and her students are researching coyotes and wolves around the American West, including in Yellowstone National Park, where she spends as much time as possible. Joanna has published several books and hundreds of peer-reviewed articles on her research and serves as an editor for several international science journals. For her efforts, she has been elected as a fellow in the American Association for Advancement of Science, as well as a fellow in the Linnaean Society of London, the institute where Charles Darwin first presented his theory of evolution. Throughout her almost 40 years of field research around the world, she has witnessed extraordinary challenges to biodiversity and human quality of life, realities that have fundamentally impacted her career. Now, in addition to being a field scientist and educator, she is also a conservation practitioner and activist. In this capacity, she serves as a member of the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Species Survival Commission and as an advisor to the United Nations Environmental Program, Project Coyote, and the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. Joanna spends as much time as she can in wild places, preferably on a horse and with her dogs, striving for optimism and solutions in a challenging world. Woo! Woo! <laughs> I what a feel resume. very bad about my resume now. I'm like, man. <laughs> You are Damn, an impressive Joanna. woman, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we also have another guest on this episode as well, and his name is Rob Edward, and he is a co-founder and strategic advisor for the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project and president of the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund. For years, he has been a leader in wolf advocacy and has been instrumental in the recent reintroduction of wolves within the state of Colorado. Rob grew up in Idaho Falls, spending as much of his summers exploring Yellowstone National Park as possible. After four years in the Air Force, he went on to earn a degree in political science, focusing on the politics of ecology from the University of Massachusetts in Boston. He extensively studied indigenous cultures and the eradication of buffalo during government-sanctioned removal efforts. During his research, he discovered the gray wolf, their plight, and all the threats to their continued survival here in the United States, specifically in the lower 48. He felt something should be done, so he took action. In 1994, Rob moved to Colorado to specialize in large predator restoration. Eventually, 
eventually the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project was born, and thanks to its efforts, wolves have been reintroduced to the state. The project's initiative works to help wolves thrive throughout the Rockies through public outreach, consensus building, and a firm embrace of the best science. Today, Rob and Joanna are here to speak about the project, the importance of wolf reintroduction efforts, differences in public opinion about wolves, and the future of the wolf throughout the Rockies. So without further ado, Rob Edward and Dr. Joanna Lambert, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the podcast, Rob and Joanna. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. So the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project made headlines around the world and here in Colorado, especially with the newly reintroduced wolves to Colorado. So just to begin and get us kicked off, for our listeners who may not be as well-versed or familiar with the initiative, can you just explain what the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is and what your role is within it? Sure. Uh, so um, I'll, I'll start off. The Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is a small, volunteer-driven nonprofit based in Durango, Colorado, um, though our volunteers, Joe and I, are kind of on the front range and others are are um, over on the western slope. So we're all over the place. But we um, formed back in uh, the mid 2000s uh, to help build momentum towards um, a ballot initiative to get wolves on the, the ballot in 2020, because after doing 30 years of due diligence, uh, speaking for myself and my colleague, Mike Phillips, uh, we saw there was no other path forward to get wolves reintroduced to Colorado other than to put it to the, to the people. Um, and so that's what we did. And the, the Wolf Project was kind of the public information, public support building mechanism to do that, working with a bunch of other nonprofit organizations in coalition. After the campaign was uh, launched, um, there was a separate entity called the Rocky Mountain Wolf Action Fund that ran the campaign. I was part of that. And, and Joe was a science advisor to that as well, Dr. Lambert. And uh, the campaign was successful. As, as you know, in November of 2020, the, the people of Colorado said, indeed, we want wolves back. We ran that campaign, interestingly, in the middle of a, a global pandemic uh, at the height of it. We weren't planning on that, but uh, and, and I guess we wouldn't have done it any differently other than, you know, there was a lot of fundraising trials that uh, we, we had to face and we couldn't go door to door like a traditional right. campaign mm -hmm. um, in terms of talking to voters. So that was definitely hard. But we won. Wolves yes, won, you did. And Colorado won. So mm -hmm. we're very happy about that. And now the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project is focused on uh, the future for wolves and people in Colorado. And that means working directly with those folks in Western Colorado who are going to be directly affected by the presence of wolves. Maybe negatively, maybe not. But nonetheless, if they're growing livestock in particular, we need to be proactive in helping uh, ranchers prepare for the eventuality of, of encountering wolves and help them understand what that means for raising livestock. It's not the end of the world for them, but it's a big change and it's a cultural thing that they didn't, uh, as an industry, didn't want to go through. So right. we're, we're here to help them with that. And we've already been very engaged in that since the campaign was successful in 2020. So we're just building on that momentum. Joe? Yeah, and just to add to that, as, as Rob indicated, um, the, the 
you know, the work that we've been doing as the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, it, it may just now be emerging in terms of kind of a conversation that folks are having now that wolves are back in Colorado. But this honestly has been a conversation that's mm-hmm. been going on amongst mm-hmm. conservationists for for decades, quite literally decades, right? How to get wolves back into Colorado. We've got this fantastic, you know, sort of prey base We've got the uh, the public lands and, and the area on the Western Slope, and this has been long recognized. So this isn't just sort of a whim that came up more recently, like, let's see what we can do. It's, it really is a, the, the culmination of decades of work, especially um, Rob himself, along with colleague uh, Mike Phillips of the Turner Fund for Endangered Species. I also, um, Rob, mm-hmm. Rob hinted at this, We have shifted gears somewhat. So leading up to the campaign, we were a large coalition, right? Um, I think over over 80 individuals that were regularly calling in and, and, you know, navigating strategy. And, you know, we had a campaign manager in the truest sense of the word, uh, um, a, a professional campaign manager. We had folks that were working with, um, you know, legal teams to put together the wording of of the ballot itself, and so that really, you know, was just it was a it was a massive effort, right? Because we also had dozens upon dozens of of boots on the ground of folks that were getting signatures, and we had one mission, and that was to get gray wolves on onto the ballot. As of November 2020, we were. We were successful with our initiative, so we have reconfigured as a group, right? So we are still called the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, but we are now sort of a, a, a sort of a lean, mean kind of fighting machine of, of five of us uh, that are working together. So we mm-hmm. can be called RMWP or Rocky Mountain Wolf Project Version Two, right? With as you know, as as Rob indicated, a, a primary mission of of um, I hear my cat yell. <laughs> and she's like, no, not wolves. It's about cats. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, you know, our sort of n- newly configured mission right. of uh, reduction of conflict, right? Of those folks that are that are working in landscapes where wolves may be in the area. So we've kind of regrouped with a new mission. We're a small, uh, tight team of of. of you know, folks with with varying uh, areas of expertise and skills. Yeah. If you're looking for a natural way to alleviate pain, stress, and anxiety, look no further. Taylor Farm Hemp Company, a woman-owned business in Vermont, specializes in small batches of a wide variety of high-quality CBD products. I'm talking salves, lotions, oils, topicals, gummies, and more. All of their products use organically grown Vermont hemp and whole flower infusions and extractions. Their CBD products are used to help alleviate a ton of different symptoms. I have been loving their body butter. It is so smooth, so nice for the skin. And out here in Colorado, your girl's got dry skin. I can't help it. Being out in the sun and the wind and the dry air, even just day to day, but especially out on a long hike, it does a number on my hands and my arms or anything that's exposed. So I've been using the body butter after I come home and take a shower and it's just perfect. 
Whether you're needing help with dry skin like me or targeted muscle and joint pain relief, arthritis, or bruising relief, Taylor Farm has a product for that. Even sleep. Their vegan and organic CBD gummies with melatonin, called Dream Bears, can help get you a more restful and restorative night's sleep. All of their products are third-party lab-tested to ensure quality, potency, and safety. Try Taylor Farm Hemp Company's topicals for gentle and effective targeted relief for pain, inflammation, and irritation, and their CBD oils and gummies to improve your everyday health and wellness. Find all of these products and more, including lip balms, bath bombs, massage oils, lotions, and body oils at www.taylorfarmhempco.com. Use code NPAD at checkout for 15% off of your first order and free shipping. Follow them on Instagram at Taylor Farm Hemp Co. for more coupon codes and discounts. That's code NPAD at checkout for 15% off of your first order plus free shipping. And you both mentioned that with farming and with ranchers that are within Colorado, there's bound to be some conflict with wolves and that you are working to help mitigate that. What does that look like? What is your mission to have ranchers be more prepared for these and to minimize the conflict? Joe, do you want to field that question first? Sure. That that comes in many forms, um, Cassie and Danielle. Um, So, you know, one piece of legislation of which we're quite proud as a a group was uh, gaining sponsorship for a bill that would result in the creation of a new license plate here in Colorado. Uh, It's beautifully rendered. It's got an image, an artist. Uh, rendering of a wolf on the license plate. I have it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's lovely. Um, And uh, that was successfully, you know, passed. We, it it is now an available license plate, all the, it's a specialty plate, right? So all of the revenue from that plate is going to a a pot of, of funds that will be used by Colorado Parks and Wildlife in uh, offsetting conflict between wolves and other predators and and, uh, those who make a living in working landscapes. So that has been something that we've been working towards. We've got a number of other initiatives with um, others on our team. Um, Courtney Vale and and Matt Barnes are working assiduously on, you know, boots, again, boots on the ground, working with ranchers, engaged in uh, sort of workshops, and and conversations, we all, in to the best of our capacity, uh, given you know various time constraints and and with our regular day jobs, uh, are showing up as much as possible to these interactions. I think, or I don't think, it's it's I, I know from from a, a lifetime of of being engaged in conservation initiatives that the single best thing to do is just show up and listen, mm-hmm. right, um, and listen mm-hmm. to the concerns of individuals. The reality is that the costs uh, and benefits of this. Uh, campaign and of the reintroduction of wolves in, in, in general are not evenly distributed, 
right? right? So those individuals on the front range having, you know, different sort of responses to the whole initiative than those many folks, not all those folks that may be uh, making a living uh, growing livestock. So whenever and wherever possible, we are showing up um, to various forums where um, concerns can be can be raised. I'll, I'll let Rob chime in. We've got we've got a number of other pieces that are going on um, elements of that I'll let Rob extrapolate on. Yeah, as, as Dr. Lambert uh, mentioned, the the bottom line is showing up. And, and Courtney and Matt in particular have been out since the campaign was uh, uh, completed in 2020, working with ranchers in northwestern Colorado. Um, that, uh, In fact, the one rancher that has become kind of uh, the focus of, you know, what happens when wolves depredate, they've had direct interactions with and, and been facilitating a lot of, of work to help get Fladry out and, you know, try to help the rancher understand what it means to really truly deal with depredation proactively, right? To try to mm-hmm. uh, help wolves uh, learn that going after livestock is not the first and best option. Right. And so that's that's the future. And, and that's what the license plate will help fund in, in a huge way and, and, and in a way that is very different from any other state um, that has wolves now. Colorado is really doing this differently. And, and that money will, will go towards non-lethal conflict reduction tools, techniques, training. You know, it, it can pay for range riders. It can pay for flattery. It can pay for flock slides. Um, it can pay for new research on other technology like drones. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's there's a lot that Colorado is doing better and and very differently. Yeah, we have ongoing conversations with Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Um, one one piece that I I think will will be really uh, successful. There's still logistics to sort out, and that is the creation of a range riding program in general. So this is, as, as Rob indicated, we have a whole, uh, uh, you know, a very diverse toolkit of what, what might be called non-lethal coexistence mechanisms or non-lethal conflict reduction tools. Um, and one of those is just getting folks, uh, you know, out into, um, you know, landscapes where wolves and cattle may be co-mingling, right? And what this looks like is, you know, trained wranglers, trained riders that are on horseback in areas and, you know, where it might be difficult to traverse on foot or in a vehicle, but getting out ahead of, you know, where or determining from horseback where wolves are, where cattle are, and, you know, sort of getting out ahead of those two species bumping into each other in that country, right? Mm -hmm. So that we know is a successful means by which we can offset conflict before it even even begins. I mean, and it's, it stems, it's it's coming from clearly from a a tradition in, in Eurasia, and especially in Europe, of just having people on the landscape in general, right? It used to be shepherds um, and, and now, you know, that, and that were continuously with their livestock. And now this is, is being replaced in some ways in, in the American West by having uh, ranks, what we call range riders out there. So we're really excited about that as, as, um, as, as an, an initiative. 
Yeah, and I think it's so it's so thrilling to hear that because just from personal experience, I mean, you can read all you want about, you know, the attitudes that different Americans have about wolves because everyone has one, it seems, even if they've never been in wolf territory, lived in wolf habitat or anything like that. Wolves are just such a divisive topic and just kind of always has been. But personally, when I worked for the Colorado Wolf and Wildlife Center. I went down to Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, for a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service hearing for the Mexican gray wolf reintroduction. And it was just something about expanding the the um, recovery area. And they were just having, you know, a hearing about it. And, you know, I went down with some of my team members. And just to see it firsthand, you know, it was like we were outnumbered like five to one, you know, ranchers versus pro-wolf. And not to say that ranchers are inherently anti-wolf. It was just concerns. And being there is makes all the difference, I think, because if we weren't there in the couple, I mean, there were some people from Wild Earth Guardians and a, a few other um, organizations. But if they weren't there, it was just, you know, there's nobody to speak to and to hear concerns you know, as far as, well, what are your worries and what can we do to help mitigate that and kind of find some sort of middle ground? And that's, you know, we can wish wolves back all we want, but if there's no collaborative effort, it's never going to happen. So I think that the work you guys are doing in that aspect is just so key to the future because like you said, Rob, like, yes, we got it. We were here, but now what? Like the success is determined with the people, unfortunately, but that's just how it is. We're not in the Wild West anymore where there's only a few people around and wildlife can abound. You know, it's it's a different world and we kind of just have to adjust to that. Yeah. yeah. And, it, you know, I always think about this. It's a fundamental human attribute to want to be heard, right? right. To, to want to have voice. Um, and I think that is one of the single most important aspects of, of all of this is, is empowering individuals to, to be heard, right? And mm-hmm. to be heard means there need to be people listening. Right. And right. So I have a, a number of, of, of graduate students that are engaged in, in aspects of this work in, in various ways. And and sure, they're coming in with their own perspectives. They've been you know trained. They're in their graduate program. And my advice to them is that you will not be the expert in this room. Right. You will not be the person, the individual that's going to be, you know, telling others what to do or what not to do. You're there to listen. Now, there are experts, right? Uh, There are experts in terms of those individuals who have worked for many years um, as, you know, conflict reduction officers, right? Or individuals that know the tools. And and that's another part of all of what we're doing, Um, not just Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, but all of the, the, you know, the, the entities from the state agency to diverse nonprofits, to individuals that, uh, we need uh, we need to figure out how to do this again, right? It's right. one of my my you know my my talking points is that for thousands upon thousands of years, humans have been living alongside you know diverse apex predators and various 
predators, but that was interrupted. That has been interrupted over the last couple of hundred years. And along with that interruption, you know, we've we've lost the the knowledge by which to accomplish that. Well, what ecologists call sympatry or, you know, what uh, we might call the sharing of landscapes among different species. So there are, um, you know, definitely circumstances where there are trainings going on and reinstalling that knowledge of, okay, what what to do about it? What are the mm-hmm. concrete tools that we have in hand? And and, um, and there are, as I, as I referenced, there are diverse tools that we can draw upon. I have been making so much progress lately with getting in all my nutrition through my meals. And this is big for me because I tend to get so busy, I just totally skip right over lunch and I pay the price later. But with Factors Delicious, ready-to-eat meals, I can easily eat better every single day. Their pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals are delivered right to my door every week. They have over 35 different options every week to choose from, and also 55 add-ons to make meal planning even more exciting. They have snacks, smoothies, meals, and more. And those meals are perfect, especially for me, because they're ready in two minutes. That's my type of meal. There's no prep and no mess. But just because they're fast, it doesn't mean that they skimped out on quality. They're nutritious and delicious. Also, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week, with the option to pause or reschedule deliveries anytime. Right now, I'm doing 6 meals a week, I use them for 6 lunches a week and then just give myself a wiggle room day. And then I plan to pause them when we head off to Peru in a couple weeks, so it's just working out perfectly. Head to factormeals.com NPAD50 and use code NPAD50 to get 50% off. That's code NPAD50. AD50 at factormeals.com slash NPAD50 to get 50% off. It's really exciting that all of this work is happening. And I think that a lot of people listening can hear all of these solutions. But at the same time, for people who might not know, and I think you both would be very good people to talk to for answers for this, but a lot of people might think, wow, this is a lot of effort to put into this. Why is it important? Why bring wolves back when they've been gone for so long? Why is this now so important to be doing? Well, I'm sure Joe and I both have... Uh, very similar answers to this. Ultimately, putting wolves back in as much of their former range as possible is morally the right thing to do. It's also, and more importantly, ecologically the right thing to do because wolves for eons were one of the primary driving forces behind the health of their prey and the landscapes that they shared with those prey animals. It's as as simple as that. We had no right morally to eradicate wolves in the first place. Mm -hmm. The idea that wolves are being forced onto people, if you will, or certain communities is understandable on one human level, but a bunch of BS on the other. The fact is they shouldn't have been eliminated in the first place. If they hadn't been and they were still just simply here as part of the carnivore suite, this wouldn't be a big fight. But because they were eliminated by the government on behalf of a small industry, and also as part of the whole collective catastrophe that was white expansion over North America, here we are. And so a few of us have decided we're going to stick our nose to the grindstone and 
mm-hmm. try to make things right again. And no apologies about that. That said, we do know what the future is, and it is trying to help people reintegrate, as Dr. Lambert was saying, that kind of mentality. And that, yeah, I mean, well, well said, Rob. And I would just add to that that yeah, regardless of of how one views species as you know either a product of literally millions of years of natural selection and evolution or you know uh god's creations right mm-hmm. regardless of how you think about species there are absolutely ethical elements um to all of of what we have wrought as a species uh, as a as a species on this planet mm-hmm. and to that point what i will always in any setting, any forum that I am in, and I teach, you know, conservation biology here at University of Colorado Boulder. I teach, you know, right now I'm teaching a course called Wildlife and Rewilding. In any interview, anything I do, I will say the same thing over and over and over again. And until it becomes as much a part of our conversation in vernacular as climate, and that is we are living in the sixth extinction right? We are living in a biodiversity extinction crisis. We are poised to lose over, these are best estimates, but over a million species in the next couple of decades. Wow. Unless we start doing something, unless we start, you know, doing, making some audacious moves as Mm -hmm. a species to rectify what we have done, right? I am absolutely, uh, you know, as we all are as a group at Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, absolutely sympathetic to the concerns of individuals. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, this was the result of an inset of individuals making decisions that now has implications for individuals, right? So, Mm -hmm. but I do, but I do not think that we should lose the forest for the trees. The, and, and the forest here is that the forest is burning down. Mm-hmm. And anything that we can do to address that, right? And this has only been going on. I mean, this is recent, right? This is just over the past few decades that this has been going on. We have an array uh, of, of strategies and tactics, tactics as conservation biologists to do something about what we have wrought on earth, right? And one of those somethings, one of those strategies uh, comes in the form of rewilding through reintroduction. And that is why I will go, <laughs> I will go to my grave making that argument because I've, I've watched firsthand as someone, as a conservation biologist who's been doing this for over 35 years in various settings around the world. I have studied species, populations that have declined, in some cases completely blinked out, right? I've watched this firsthand and anything that we can do not only is going to rectify the, the wrongs that we have brought on this earth, but it's also going to give our young people hope, right? I have to get up and and lecture to students that are 18 to 22 years old, right? That are coming in like, oh, what are we going to do? What, you know, what what have you baby boomers done to our earth? Well, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Overwhelming. But when you can go into a classroom or you could, whether it's primary, secondary, graduate, whatever, if you can go into a classroom and say, okay, you guys, guess what? You know why we now have gray wolves in Colorado? Because a group of citizens got together and made it happen. And that gives hope. 
And as soon as you have a piece of hope, or as soon as you feel like there is action that can be taken, right? You know, leaving hope aside, just action, then you are catalyzed instead of paralyzed. And that is what we need more of so that we don't lose the forest for the trees or that we don't lose, a, you know, a million species. And again, maybe those will be the last words beyond my deathbed and, and, that'll, and that'll be the way I'll go out fighting. Well, the passion that you have is just, I mean, it's tangible. Like I can feel it through my screen and it's incredibly inspiring to see somebody so, you know, just live their life according to their beliefs. Because a lot of people have opinions and beliefs and then do nothing about it because, you know, life gets in the way or there's other responsibilities or whatever. And it's great to have, you know, opinions and beliefs, but it's an it's an entire other thing to mirror your life regarding them. And I just think it's great. And I just have to ask both of you, you know, why, why wolves? With all of the overwhelming issues that we just kind of touched upon, what, why this species? Because wolves are so symbolic, I think that it is important for the current collective human psyche that we show that we can respect them for what they are, for their ability to be basically the engine of evolution. Yeah. And, and, and why wolves there are, as Rob um, suggested, I mean, they're, oh, they're so iconic. Right. And, and, and Danielle, I believe you said it at the outset, like everybody has an opinion about a wolf, right? Whether right. you've ever been made, in fact, most people have never seen a wolf in, in real life. Right. And yet, you know, they loom large in, in our psyche, in our history. And indeed, as a species, we've shared landscapes with them, you know, at least for 70,000 years as humans entered into the Northern Hemisphere out of, out of Africa and then encountered gray wolves. So, you know, there's the looming large element and the sort of symbolism and the iconic nature of, of Canis lupus. There are multiple other arguments, right? We could make the arguments from a science-based perspective. Right. That as we convert landscapes, as we impact other species around the world, the category and, and now I'll speak directly to terrestrial systems. Um, but the category or, or the, the grouping of, of species that we are losing the most are those species that occupy this apex predator position. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, around the world, think about the landscapes that you've been in where, you know, there are apex predators. There are very, very few of them, and they tend to be constrained to national parks, not just here, but around the world, right? And what we know now from, you know, superb work, a lot of which comes out of Yellowstone National Park, but at other sites around the world as well, is that when you put apex predators back whence they came, that there are cascading effects on, on populations of, of the rest of the food web. Right. And so we could come at it from, as we were referencing earlier, the ethical and moral element of it, the sort of iconic 
piece of it, the ecological aspects of it. I mean, there are there are multiple pieces of it. There's also, you know, a lot of um, nonprofits and governmental organizations, IUCN, for example, will engage with a tactic that's that uses uh, charismatic megafauna as a device to get people's attention. Right. Like the polar bears right. and yeah, exactly. save the polar bears, save yeah. the pandas. Yeah. yeah. Panda bears were the first, right? Like WWF right. coming up with panda bears because people, and they tend to be large body. They tend to be mammals. They tend to be really charismatic. Um, and, you know, there are a number of people that have very, very, you know, vitriolic responses to wolves, but then there are a whole lot of folks that have the opposite response, right? And wolves, quite honestly, make an excellent, uh, what we would call flagship species. And Mm -hmm. so that is, you know, that is a a, a tactic that can be used as as a group of conservation practitioners is is the use of the flagship species and and wolves make a good Mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Looking at wolves in Colorado from an ecological standpoint, what have been the effects on the environment since they were eradicated? And what do you expect to be the positive impacts now that they are back reintroduced? Should I jump in? You should. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, um, and I'll let Rob chime in. I I don't want to dominate here, but um, I think we've all seen it firsthand. And that is if you think about driving in Vermont, right? Mm -hmm. Being on I-80 in Illinois, what do you run into at night? White-tailed. Tons of deer. Deer. Roadkill deer. What if if you're spending, if you're eating an ice cream cone in Estes Park, right? That's right up the uh, the road from me here in in the Front Range. It's adjacent to Rocky Mountain National Park. You'll run into... Tons of elk. Hundreds of elk as they walk down Main Street, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I think, or I don't think, I know um, that the most conspicuous uh, indicator of what happens when you don't have an intact food web, when you remove apex predators, is that the, the animals, the prey species that those an- that those prey, you know, predators are consuming become vastly overabundant, right? Mm-hmm. And what happens then is that those foods that those prey species are consuming, namely, you know, uh, all the browse and the graze, right? The plant communities get, um, get mowed down, right? To the, the and this this is not something that is has been recent just recently noted. These observations come back, could date back to, you know, right about the time that folks started to realize that hmm, maybe we should stop killing predators. Aldo Leopold in the 40s made the was you know the initial voice in in no in suggesting that maybe we should be putting wolves back where they used to be. And he indeed suggested Yellowstone National Park as as that initial site. And eventually, of course, that occurred in the mid-90s. So that kind of predator-prey plant set of interactions is is one of the most conspicuous aspects of, of what we've been doing as we remove apex predators from landscapes. And speaking about, you know, what you see, like just even, and I know a lot of people wouldn't 
put it together. But just for uh, an example that I think a lot of people that have visited Rocky Mountain in particular can relate to is all the wiring around the saplings and the small trees just to to protect them from grazing of the elk because the elk are just, you know, not only are there tons of them, they're very cool with just hanging out because they have no, no one to fear, nowhere to go, nowhere to be, and just kind of sit around and just mosey along and they're not continuously moving like they would be if there was a large apex predator in the landscape. And obviously that has detrimental effects on, like you said, the brows and everything. But yeah, just going up and seeing like, especially around the Stanley Hotel and like just different areas in Estes, there's this wiring around all of the trees. And a lot of people wonder what that's about. And I know there is certain other landscaping things that it is for too but yeah and it also is a source of important data right so mm-hmm. uh, a lot of those um those wired in areas that you're seeing both in rocky mountain national park and if you go spend time in yellowstone are what mm-hmm. we call exclosure experiments mm-hmm. and so this is a way of being able to document what happens to plant communities in the absence of overgrazing and overbrowsing. Right. And so, and it's really, again, you know, conspicuous, right? So when those plant species aren't over um, exploited by, by herbivores like elk and deer, uh, they have a chance to recruit um, mm-hmm. you know, more individual plants and they tend to, you know, they tend to grow taller. And so it's also an important source of data to demonstrate just how closely interactive all of these um, species are. Right. Unfortunately, Rob had to step away for a work emergency. So for the remainder of the episode, we will just be talking to Joanna. Just touching, kind of pivoting, because you brought up the prey species, I know a big concern of, um, you know, we have kind of the ranching community, but we also have the hunting community who is worried about, you know, what the presence of wolves is going to do for how that's going to affect prey species that they're also wanting to hunt. And you hear a lot of concerns regarding numbers and prey availability and things like that. So can you touch on that in Colorado, particularly what prey numbers are like right now? Are they in danger of being wiped out by wolves? Um, you know, just elaborate on that. So the we the, la, uh, the last winter count of elk in Colorado was 301,000 in the state of Colorado. Um, We have the largest, most abundant elk population in the country and arguably in the world. So Cervus elaphus or elk is also found throughout the Northern Hemisphere and in Eurasia, they're called red deer. And so we actually, in terms of density, have the highest density of elk slash red deer anywhere. So there's that part of it, right? The other other part of it is that uh, it it is true, uh, hunters are, are, are concerned right? And elk do move differently and they do become less naive, right? And uh, in the presence of apex predators and are therefore uh, more challenging for outfitters to find and, and, and for hunters um, to take. But it, you know, we're, the Colorado Parks and Wildlife is, is, will, will be putting in, you know, 10 to 15 
wolves a year for the next three to five uh, years. And so that the effects are going to be largely more diffuse than folks think. Yeah, so chances are there will, will be, I don't want to discount the effect of what it means to have an apex predator back in a landscape where there are prey species. There will be impacts, there will be behavioral impacts, and in some areas there you know, may be uh, you know, fewer of those elk, but there we do have this extraordinary prey base. The other part that I would jump in and say is that as with every other citizen of not only Earth, but more specifically Colorado and the American West, what we should really be more concerned about when it comes to the distribution of, of animals like elk is habitat loss and climate change and disease, mm -hmm. right? So we know, I mean, reports by various state agencies are demonstrating over and over again that it's the loss of habitat to things like subdevelopment, right? To the clearing of areas for, you know, the creation of new, you know, roads or, or you know, various built structures that forest fire is a consequence or wildfire is a consequence of drier seasons. And, you know, I mean, when was it's like 60 today, right? I mean, right. And then yeah. we have as we those of us in the West are like right now, at least some of us are terrified about what this is going to hold. This season is going to hold for wildfires this summer. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's wildfire, it's climate change, it's habitat loss, and then also disease that are really the, the, the drivers, or I, I hate using that word as, as an ecologist, but the in incredibly important variables that are influencing what prey species are doing. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, Doug Smith, the, the longstanding lead bi wolf biologist at Ye Yellowstone National Park has, you know, made the argument that, at, you know, that we shouldn't be worried about what wolves did to elk in Yellowstone. Right. The consequence of not having an apex predator in Yellowstone and having an extraordinarily overly abundant population of elk in Yellowstone leads to these really, really just devastating die offs. Right. Mm. Uh, that are a consequence of starvation and disease. Right. Because numbers of elk become unsustainable. Right. They over browse. Right. And then in periods where, you know, there may be drought or wildfire or, you know, the the uh, the plants aren't as abundant as those elk need. We see these periods of starvation, which are arguably, you know, we have the data to, to demonstrate this having a greater impact on those total numbers. So I think it's really important to think about the fact that, you know, predator-prey interaction, sure, that's a, that's a part of the formula of what happens in terms of total numbers of animals. But these other effects, what we call extrinsic effects of food availability, disease, habitat availability, climate are huge. And those are the things that, that we need to be thinking about in a, in a very big way, not just in the Western Slope of Colorado, but in, in on planet Earth in general. I love the way you said all of that because you made a really big point there where this project, it is about wolves, but it's not just about wolves because there are so many things that I think a lot of people aren't realizing when you say, whether you're on the side of 
not reintroducing them or reintroducing them, people may not realize that there's so much implications that do coincide with climate change. When you take away a apex predator and you have this overgrazing of all these plants, you're also affecting all the other animals that are within the within the area, within the region. You're also affecting all the other plant life that's within totally. the region. And think about that in terms of carbon sequestration, right? Mm-hmm. There are all these really, really important uh, meta-analyses that have been done, you know, in different areas of the world that demonstrate the significance of all of these interactions you know, for carbon sequestration, right? We need we need these intact food webs and, and intact animal assemblages to, you know, to start uh, balancing what's happening to the, you know, the carbon load of, of you know, both terrestrial and then atmospheric, right? And yeah. so uh, that that is a big part. And But that sounds lofty, right? You can't go in terms of making these arguments if you've got like a, you know, a uh, three sentence blurb in a, in a piece in the LA Times. You can't, you don't, you can't necessarily start off with carbon sequestration because people are, right. they like, they just, they're like, they people just read over it. it. Yeah. yeah. They're like, and what's that? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, now wolves in my backyard, that is something I know about. Right. So, mm-hmm. it, you know, you really have to kind of balance those arguments. The other part of it, you know, and there are numerous economic arguments that we could make, you know, so for example, uh, all of those mule deer and white-tailed deer that, and elk that are being horrifically collided into by vehicles, you know, on highways mm-hmm. around the country, that is extraordinarily expensive, not only clearly in terms of, of, of funds, but also in terms of life, right? Human and, life, right? And, yeah. And, and we know there was a really nice piece that um, scientific paper, that peer-reviewed scientific paper that came out, uh, gosh, I don't remember the date, that was last uh, last year, um, sometime, that demonstrated exactly that, right? That the costs of vehicular collision of, you know, of uh, into like deer uh, go way down in areas where there are apex predators, right? So mm-hmm. that is another uh, piece of it. There also, there's a really important initiative that is going on in Paradise Valley, north of Yellowstone National Park, where all of the, out, you know, whole array, at last count, um, it was about at least 180 small business owners who make their living off of, off of the wildlife, right? In a non-consumptive way, in, in many ways, right? That they need those wildlife on the landscape. And if those wildlife aren't around, if they're getting overexploited, if they're getting overhunted, you know, that, that it impacts them as business owners, as outfitters as, as well. And so um, that initiative um, for your listeners is the Wild Livelihoods initiative in Paradise Valley. And they were, as a body, were successful in lobbying for the reduction of or the the removal of a no quota hunting season on wolves because of that exact argument that that so many, you know, tour guides and outfitters rely on things like, you know, having uh, intact landscapes with with predators on them, that Mm -hmm. that was a very successful economic argument as well. 
Well, there's also the, you know, tourism dollars. We saw, especially in Yellowstone, I mean, the amount of money that is being spent at the park and in the surrounding communities because people travel there to see the wolves and other large predators, of course. You know, do you think that that has that potential can uh, will unfold here? Do you think at any point in our national parks? Yeah, it's a that's a really good question. Um, Western Colorado is not Yellowstone, right? Right. So Yellowstone, as you as I'm sure most of your listeners know, is a truly remarkable place, right? Best place literally in the world to see wild wolves um, in person, right? But, you know, that's a national park with these great roads that bisect the national park, you know, throughout the park, where you can set up scopes, right? And and watch those wolves. And for the most part, we, uh, you know, we really don't have those kinds of viewing circumstances um, here. That Now, that's not to say that that won't, that having wolves in the landscape won't impact ecotourism. There are a lot of folks that will come to Colorado simply knowing that, wow, maybe if I'm, you know, backpacking, you know, maybe I'll hear a wolf at night mm-hmm. howling. And how cool is that? Right. Or just knowing that there's a little bit of the wild left in Colorado. And yeah. Oh, my God. I can just that is just so profound because I particularly, you know, I've lived in Washington state. And when I was in the North Cascades, just hiking around like I never saw anything but just knowing that there are a small handful of grizzlies there, there's a small handful of wolves there. There's, you know, obviously tons of coyotes and mountain lions and things like that. And on paper, that might be a little frightening. But when you're actually there and people who love nature and love wildlife, just even knowing that you're breathing the same air as apex predators and animals that have always been there and truly deserve to be there. It's just so different than, you know, when I'm hiking here over the years, even, you know, especially before the wolf reintroduction, which obviously, just so everyone knows, is very recent. December 18th, was it, of 2023 yep. um, was the reintroduction. I was there. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. What a day. Yeah. It's like I just have this thought of, you know, looking out into Western Colorado and all this beautiful landscape and all this expanse and just thinking how sad, how sad that there is just I mean, obviously, we don't have grizzlies anymore. We don't have wolves. We don't have, you know, it's just like it feels empty and kind of like a waste a little bit, you know, like, yeah, there's wildlife, but it's such an imbalance and it's not the way that it has always been or is supposed to be and has the potential to be. And it's just now that we're moving forward with, you know, yes, this is just one reintroduction effort in one state. But do you think that we'll be seeing more of this type of thing in the West or throughout the U.S.? Yeah, (laughs) sure hope so. And, you know, Colorado is poised to be, regardless of of the varying perspectives that folks might have on this, and there are diverse perspectives, and I'm just one of those, right? I'm just 
Um, but, you know, we are poised to be like the hub of rewilding and reintroduction, right? So Colorado Parks and Wildlife has already put back otters into, you know, well, even on the river that I live on, the northern, uh, the North St. Brain that comes out of Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, putting back lynx, right, Canada lynx into the Rocky Mountains in, in the 90s. We put back gray wolves. Was there a moose reintroduction the here? Moose were, were Sitka, yeah, moose population was put back in. There are, it's looking very, very favorable that we'll be putting back Wolverine in the next few few years. Wow. Um, so, you know, to me, the, this gives me great, uh, a source of, of, of great pride in this state. We've got, you know, this remarkable state agency, forward thinking state wildlife agency with some, you know, superb scientists that are at the helm of, of these initiatives. Um, and, you know, I'm, I may be aberrant. I'm a little bit, you gotta be a little cray cray to be the kind of person that I, I am, which means, you know, when I was, even though I was born and raised in the city as a young girl, all I wanted to do was to be away from cities and at, at a young age, you know, filled up a backpack and, and, and went off and lived in a tent for a year and a half in Equatorial Africa to study wild chimpanzees. And I'm happiest in places, and I'll say this, and it always sounds crazy, but, you know, I'm happiest in, in places where I know there's something that can eat me. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> like, to the right people. And yeah. We know. <laughs> we get it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, there have been folks that have talked about ecological boredom. We live in an ecologically boring world, right? And and bringing back some of the wildness that was around just, you know, just even a few decades ago can can address some of that. And I not everybody feels this way. I really want to be careful about this, you know, because what I might blithely or, you know, flippantly call you know, whatever. Um, I want to be in landscapes where things eat me. And I spent, that's what I do. I go to the most remote parts of the world to study wild animals and to run around looking for those wild animals because that's what I do for my research. But, uh, you know, those individuals that are trying to make a living, well, I am making a living doing that, actually. That's what yeah. I do. Uh, but uh, those folks that are making a living growing livestock may I absolutely think, may think differently about this. But there's a huge percentage of, of our population that does have this kind of e either ecological grief, as it's been called, ecological boredom, that is, uh, again, a byproduct of what we've been doing to our earth as we disrupt food webs and remove, you know, wild things. And so putting some of those wild things back is a really important something that we can do and we've demonstrated the beauty thing is is that we've demonstrated that we can do it this yeah this was yeah standing, standing out in front of rei standing out in front of you know whatever getting signatures right to, to and and it worked and that's and that's awesome <laughs> and i think going forward it's more of a collective instead of learning to live alongside wolves, it's kind of a collective remembering because bringing it back to what you said in the beginning for 70,000 years or whatever the number was, we've done that. And yes, we lived differently. Our lives were differently. The world was different. And it's not going to be the same, but it can be done. It has been done. And it's just 
figuring out how to do that. And I think that the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project has obviously made a huge step forward in that and obviously is continuing to do that through the efforts, even though you guys are now, what, five members? And I know you said you're all volunteer based, but just to kind of wrap things up, you know, people I know that are listening, especially that live here in the state that are inspired or, you know, want to do what they can to support the wolf reintroduction or to better educate themselves on the issues that are going on in the state. What, Where would you best direct them to do those things? Yeah. So Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the first place I would go to is the cpw.gov uh, site. They have, essentially, they, they are are publishing these what we uh, what they're calling wolf news, right? So they they are continuously updating that. A couple of weeks ago, they put out a map of where the wolves are right now. This is based on on the collars uh, that those wolves are wearing, so they can stay up to date on on that. There are also numerous ways that your listeners can support this effort. I think the most important thing wolves are going to are you know given half a chance, wolves do well. Gray wolves, gray wolves do very well. So the the that is not the issue. The issue is that every like every other conservation initiative that we're engaged in as as professionals, you know, the, how this is all going to go down is about the people involved, right? And so that those conversations need to continue to unfold in, in various settings through education and also through conflict reduction and the recognition, again, that the costs and benefits are not equally distributed. How that can, can go down is honestly through financial support. Right. And go get your wolf plate. Yeah, go get, get your wolf, wolf plate. plate. Uh, go to rock, you know, the look up Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. Uh, we've got a donate button, you know, right on our website. All of those funds, you can rest assured that every single penny of those funds goes directly to offset conflict uh, between predators and uh, livestock producers in on the western slope you know so remaining educated which is uh you know doing a google search going to cpw's uh, sites donating when and where possible is is really important amazing and for you mentioned this a little bit in brief passing earlier but you mentioned that over the next couple of years that the project is planning to reintroduce 10 to 15 wolves over the next few years, but what are the future goals of Rocky Mountain Wolf Project as a whole? Yeah. And so that, you know, those 10 to 15 wolves per year over three to five years, those were um, outlined in the so-called wolf plan. It's called the Wolf Conservation and Management Plan that was put out by Colorado Parks and Wildlife and then approved by the commission of the of parks and wildlife. So all of those, and I would encourage listeners to look into that. That's readily downloadable off the CPW mm-hmm. side. It's it's an amazing wolf plan. You know, I I think uh, one of the best out there. I mean, it's not perfect, but and you know, hindsight always reveals that, and it, it'll mm-hmm. uh, be continue. You know, in the future, revised. So it's not perfect, but it's uh, it's incredibly detailed and forward thinking. And um, so I 
I mentioned that because those 10 to 15 wolves per year are going to be, oh, that's, that's the purview of Colorado Parks and Wildlife, right? Not mm-hmm. Rocky Mountain Wolf Project. Uh, with regards to the Rocky Mountain Wolf Project, RNWP, we will continue to engage in conflict reduction and the maximization of coexistence of predators and of humans uh, and in sharing landscapes that and in every you know way that that we can think of from you know education science communication that as a, the science advisor to RMWP that is what I'm engaged in the most again all of this is not our day job right what the five of us are doing this as and you know sort of in our off time from our day jobs but yeah science communication yeah so that that's that's what we're involved in is is trying to make this work because this is this is not je- this didn't end once wolves went in to the western slope in december right this it is started. we're now just getting started yeah so I have two final questions. One, just the clarification. Just I know a lot of people are kind of like, well, where are these wolves coming from? Are they even native to the Colorado? Like da da da. So I know that some of the individuals, if not all, came from Oregon this time around. Is that correct? Yes. Is that kind of the continual plan or is it just going to adjust as the time goes on where the individuals are coming from? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, to add some context to that, it was biologically it made a, it makes a lot of sense to uh, get the wolves from the northern Rockies. Right. They, um, they're adapted to the consumption of elk. Right. Um, right. And I, I mentioned that because there is another population of gray wolves, and that is in the upper Midwest, Michigan, you know, Minnesota. Uh, Great Lakes uh, area. Right. Right. Great Lakes. Uh, but they're consuming different prey and sort of biologically, genetically, you know, so- somewhat more divergent from the northern Rockies. And our vision was to get a contiguous population of, of, of wolves from the northern Rockies to the southern Rockies. So biologically, it makes a lot of sense in terms of what they're consuming you know, having large mm-hmm. paws for hunting in snow, hunting those elk. Um, now, so what that means is that that those wolves could have theoretically come from Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, right? Um, right. Those states were um, unwilling to to provide wolves for. My dog is sleeping <laughs> and making barking, dreaming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but those those states were uh, unwilling to to give wolves. So there are wolves in eastern Oregon and eastern Washington. And ultimately, it was East, eastern Oregon that said, yes, we will yield mm-hmm. some of our wolves. Now, they have a pretty small population. It was only right. something in, you know, the 180 something total wolves. So they agreed to uh, 10 wolves this this Okay. Season. You know, conversations are still going on with uh, the tribes, confederated tribes of the sovereign nations of indigenous uh, populations of of the American West. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that may very well be a source for the next set of wolves that will be coming in in this year of of 2024 conversations. I'm not privy to these conversations. This This is strictly, you know, between the state agency and other states and First Nations. So... Um, but yeah, there are 
other sources that uh, that may uh, present themselves um, in, in the coming in the years. Economy. And of course, yeah, there have been, um, I know a lot of people know this, but some don't, there have been wolves that have come naturally down without any reintroduction effort, just natural, you know, migration patterns and things like that. I read in 2014, not even 15 miles from me, there was a collared wolf that was hit and killed by a car. So it's, they do happen. I mean, there people in the wolf world know this, but for others, you know, that there are other individuals that may be present just on their own, not reintroduced. Incredibly rare, right? So just mm-hmm. a handful. And that was part of it because that did come up in our conversations. Like, are they going to get here anyway? Right. Um, and just a handful. And uh, the vast majority of them, not all, were have been killed in one way or another, either mm-hmm. being hit by a car or poisoned or shot. Um, right. And so it was ultimately determined that biologically, the, the likelihood of enough individual wolves successfully navigating, getting through Wyoming, and then making it to Colorado was was un- unlikely to ever. It's like the gauntlet. It, they the have gauntlet. to like run the gauntlet. Yeah. And, and you know, 84% of Wyoming is a predator control area so where wolves right. can be shot, can and are shot. And so, and then ecologically, it's a very difficult area for them to get through this region known as the Red Desert. It's it's not ideal uh, habitat in terms of, of prey availability. So um, that that has been an important part of this conversation is that and, and getting enough wolves here in, you know, in a timely fashion to result in a biologically um, sort of viable population was unlikely through natural mm-hmm. dispersion, hence the reintroduction. I have one last question. Unless you have something, Cassie, because it's not it's not anything deep. It's just no, go for it. I just want to know, how did you feel on December 18th? <laughs> oh, God, you guys. Um, so as I, as I hinted or may have said explicitly, you know, I've been doing this a long time, working with wild animals, um, working, you know, towards trying to protect species and habitat and populations in, in different parts of the world. It's a long game, right? And in many cases, it doesn't work. And in many cases, I've gone back to areas where I've worked for a long time and circumstances are actually worse for wildlife. And in many cases, worse for humans in terms of livelihood and well-being. And that's and it's and it's hard. Right. The conservation is, you know, when anybody asks me to describe what conservation biology is, I always say, well, conservation biology in reality is about having a lot of really, really difficult conversations that might be awkward and challenging, but showing up and doing them anyway, right? And and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Being there on December 18th, you know, and I'm I'm of a certain age and I've been doing this a long time. And I can say unequivocally, that was the, as soon as I heard this and you could have heard a pin drop, you know, there, it, it was silent. And then all of a sudden the sound of, of the first crate, you know, the door opening and the, you know, explosion of, of, of wolf as he pushed off with his back paws, you know, off the back of the crate out 
and then suddenly literally pause on the ground. That was the single most definitive, unequivocal moment of my career. It, it was, it was, it was right there. There was no like, oh, maybe this will work. You know, maybe it won't. No, this was unequivocal, definitive evidence. There's a wolf. It is now in Colorado. And this is only happening because of Proposition 114. And I, I, I described it to a few reporters afterwards that I had for my whole life, I've heard this expression of I was left breathless. That was the first time I'd ever experienced it. And I didn't even know that was the, that I'd never experienced it until that moment, because when that moment occurred, the oxygen in my lungs just literally exhaled. I, I, I visibly exhaled and was breathless. It was extraordinary. It was uh, the sensory elements of it, the sound, the, uh, the, the way it smelled, those wolves, that wolves have a natural smell, right? And you could mm-hmm. smell those animals. That first, that first um, wolf, you know, ran by me, you know, just within a few feet. It was extraordinary. It, uh, you know, I, I'll die happy because of that moment. It's so nice to hear. It's just so cool. It's so, so cool. cool to hear, especially just hearing before this, like this throughout this entire conversation, the work that was put into it and then reaching that final moment of we did it. Yeah. We're here. Yeah. It's amazing. Did, yeah. You know, I was one of the people along with Rob and, uh, and, a, and a few others that delivered those signatures you know, I did the ad commercials, you know, the pro- and those seemed really back now that I at the moment at the time it felt like, oh, my God, this is huge. But, you know, now looking back, it was everything was still abstract. Right. It was still just an idea, a really, really awesome, audacious idea, this vision that Mike Phillips had. Um, really in, in 2014 when he first proposed it. But then all of a sudden to have it be real in the form of, of you know, this, this gorgeous animal, again, whether you call this animal God's creatures or the result of natural selection, whatever, it was, it was incredible. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us and talking us through all of that. And I mean, I personally could keep you on the phone for the next four hours. Um, <laughs> um, but thank you for going over all of that and just being such a voice and advocate. I know you have a lot going on. And like you've mentioned, this is your side job, but it seems like it's a passion. Oh, and yeah. 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 The, and, you know, and likewise to you, like, thank you for what you do. You're bringing this voice you're bringing this voice to the people. So thank you for what you do. And we're all, you know, it all, we all gotta, we all gotta do our bit, you know? That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you guys so much for this very insightful conversation. I feel like we answered a lot of questions and learned a lot today. So thank you all for listening. In the meantime, enjoy the view. But watch your back. Bye, everyone. Bye.
Thank you so much for joining us again this week. If you have a trail tale or story suggestion, send us an email at stories at npadpodcast.com. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at National Park After Dark and on Twitter at npadpodcast. Join our Outsiders Only community on Patreon or Apple subscriptions to listen ad-free, unlock monthly bonus episodes, and exclusive content. And remember, when you support our sponsors, you are supporting our show. For our exclusive discount code, and source information from today's episode, check out the show notes. For more information on our show, our book recommendations, merch updates, and more, visit our website at npadpodcast.com. And please rate, review, and subscribe from wherever you listen to podcasts.